John chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have it up here on the screen. You can follow along. In our last two studies uh, in, in the gospel, uh, according to John, we looked at a conversation between Jesus and a guy named Nicodemus. And if you were here with us, you'll remember that Nicodemus um, was about as put together as you could possibly be, all right? He was uh, part of the intellectual elite. He was part of the highest religious establishment. He was morally disciplined. He was wealthy. He had significant political power. But Jesus, in his conversation with this Nicodemus, he told Nicodemus, he said, all, all this stuff, all of this striving, all of these efforts, all of your accomplishments, Nicodemus, your sin and self-righteousness, it condemns you. All of these things over here, it, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Your sin condemns you. You stand condemned before a holy God. Nicodemus, you don't need more teaching to follow. You need a new heart. You need a new root. You need, uh, you need a savior. But Nicodemus... Don't despair because that's the very reason I've come. That's what Jesus told him. So immediately after this conversation, John is going to give us the record of another conversation. And this time Jesus is conversing with a female Samaritan outcast. Okay, it's, it's, You've you got to um, take note that there are these two conversations back to back. I think from an external perspective, Nicodemus and this Samaritan outcast have nothing in common. Right? From the outside. Have nothing in common. But one is an insider, one's an outsider. But what John is going to show us here is that these two do have something in common. You may be an insider, you may be an outsider, but both of you need an experience with Jesus. Both of you need an encounter with Jesus. I don't know what background you're coming in here with this morning. Uh, You might be the perpetual do-gooder, everything on the outside looks squeaky clean, or uh, on the other hand, you might be uh, uh, living your life on the very precipice of hell. Maybe you're like me and you're somewhere in between that, those two extremes. Um, But what I do know is that the message of Jesus Christ is relevant to you today. Every single person in here, it's relevant to you today. That's why John puts these two conversations back to back, Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the Samaritan outcast. Back to back. Jesus' ministry is both available and necessary for every person on the planet, every person in this room. So let's go. John 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. All right, let's stop for a second. Um, let's talk some geography and history uh, to understand what's about to go down. Okay? The Jews primarily lived in a, in a like 120-mile-long region up and down uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so up in the north of this 120 miles, up to the far north, you've got Galilee. And down to the far south, you've got Judea. Um, Both of these areas, the the, the far north and the far south, Galilee and Judea, were primarily made up of Jews. Smack dab in the middle of those two regions was an area known as Samaria. Okay? Um, The Samaritans, as many of you know, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. They They wouldn't even associate with one another. And here's the reason why it goes way back. Hundreds of years before Christ came on the scene, the Babylonians came in and they attacked the nation of Judah. Okay, they dominated them and they, they took most of the people of Judah, right? Which is, you remember, that's, that's part of the tribe of, uh, part of the, the nation of Israel that had split off, right? So it was Israel, the Jews. 
They had attacked Judah. They had taken most of the people back with them to the land of the Chaldeans, to the, to the uh, Babylonians. Um, however, they left a small remnant of like the weak and the poor in that area to, to tend, the, tend the fields, tend the animals that were left and so on, just to make sure that things didn't grow all desolate. And then what the Babylonians did, this was custom back then, they would take some of their own people and they would then move them and they would live in place of the Jews. So they would come, they sent their own people from other countries to come in and live with uh, this small little remnant. The Jews who had been carried off to Babylon, the exiles, were able to kind of keep themselves separated from the Babylonians, and so they were able to, to maintain their cultural and their religious identity. By and large, they, they, they maintained their identity as a people. However, uh, the Jews that were not exiled, the Jews that were remaining in that area, ended up intermarrying with the people who the Babylonians had sent in. All these foreign nations, they came in, they intermarried with them, they adopted much of their culture, they adopted even uh, some of their religious practices, Okay? They adopted a bunch of paganism into the Judaism. They, they ended up rejecting all of the Old Testament except the first five books of the Bible. They developed this like weird kind of hybrid religion, even, even beginning to sacrifice some of their children to pagan idols. Okay? That, those, they became the Samaritans. Okay? Those were the Samaritans. So time goes on, and if you read Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, you'll read about how later kings allowed some of these Jews that were living in Babylon to actually return to the area, go back to Jerusalem where they're going to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, okay? So these Jews come back into the area, and so when the Jews arrive in Jerusalem, the Samaritans like, hey, welcome home. Um, we're building the temple, huh? Cool. How, you know, how can we help? And the Jews who had come back said, are you kidding me? No way. We'll have no part with you. You've intermarried with these other nations. You've, you've, come, you've rejected God. You're a heretic. Absolutely not. What you have done is unforgivable. We're done with you. Our relationship's over. As you can imagine, the Samaritans didn't like that a whole lot, right? Um, So what happened was a certain renegade Jew decided to capitalize on this, and he went off, and he actually married a Samaritan woman, and he told the rest of the Samaritans, he said, forget these guys then. They're not going to let us worship their God. We'll go worship our own God. let's Let's go build our own temple up on this other mountain, up on Mount Gerizim. We're going to go up and build our own temple. We're going to go get our own priesthood. And that's exactly what they did. And that happened for about 300 years. The Samaritans in this kind of weird hybrid religion worshiped up in Mount Gerizim. 300 years go by. Eventually, the Jews have enough. And in 120 BC, 120 years before Christ stepped onto the scene, a whole bunch of Jews actually marched into Samaria, up the mountain, and tore the temple down to the ground. Okay? 120 years go by, Jesus steps on the scene. These two groups, the Jews and Samaritans, absolutely hate each other. Absolutely hate one another. Um, if, you wanted, uh, if, you were a, uh, if you were a good Jew... You did everything you could to avoid a Samaritan because you, you hated them. You didn't like them culturally. You didn't like them racially. You didn't like them religiously. Okay? If you were a good Jew in Jesus' day, you did everything you could to avoid them. If you wanted to go from Galilee down to Judea, you would not go through Samaria. You'd go around Samaria. The problem is that made a three-day trek, three-day journey, turn into a six-day journey. Okay? But if you were a, a good Jew, that's what you did. Uh, Jesus was not what we would define as a good Jew. Right, because because Jesus went straight down Samaria. Um, uh, he walked right through the middle. He stopped on his way uh, through Samaria. He stopped at a fork in the road, about half a mile from a town called Sychar, where Jacob's well was located. Verse six. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
I mean, remember the Jewish day went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., so the sixth hour is about noon, right in the middle of the day. It's, it's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, and again, don't miss a scandal. I can almost guarantee you that when Jesus spoke to the woman, when he actually addressed the woman, which it seems like they're alone at this point, when Jesus actually spoke to the woman, I guarantee you that she probably looked around to see who he was talking to because there's no way that he was talking to her. I've told you, the Jews saw the Samaritans as racially inferior and ungodly heretics. Um, A good Jew would not only not talk with, with, with a Samaritan, a good Jew also would never have taken something from the hand of a Samaritan. He's asking her for something from her hand. If, if a Jew absolutely had to travel through the land of Samaria, it said that the Jews would actually travel with their own food, their own plates, and their own cups because they would not want to use anything or take anything from the Samaritans. Jesus is breaking all of those rules. Um, the scandal goes in even deeper because she says, how are you asking me a woman of Samaria for something to drink? She's a woman. And if you, if you go to the end of the story, I think it's verse... 29 or 30 or something around there. At the end of the story, when the disciples return, it says that they're shocked that Jesus would actually be talking to a woman. It was considered absolutely beneath a man to be talking to a woman in public, especially for a rabbi. Um, There was an old rabbinical precept at that time that said, let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not with his own wife. You wouldn't even talk to your own wife in public. Um, in In that day, women were considered vastly inferior. There was even a group of religious leaders called the bleeding Pharisees or the bruised Pharisees because what would happen is when they would walk down the street, if they had to walk by a woman, they would close their eyes and put their head down and they'd keep moving because, because number one, they didn't want to be tempted to lust after her, but number two, they didn't want to waste their time engaging with the inferior sex. And so they were called the, they were called the bleeding Pharisees or the bruised Pharisees because they would walk by them and they would bump into things and trip over things. I'm serious. Okay, ridiculous, right? Absolutely ridiculous. Um, Jesus is breaking all the rules. But it goes even deeper than that because Jesus wasn't just engaging with an average woman at a well. He wasn't engaging with a respectable, reputable woman. He was engaging with a woman who is a social outcast. How do we know that? Well, women typically came out together in packs to draw water. It was a social time. It wasn't something you did alone. They came out together. Okay? And they definitely didn't come out at noon. Okay, they, they, uh, that, that was when the sun was at its hottest. They would come early in the day or later in the evening, but never at noon. Um, so the question is, why would this woman walk from Sychar all the way to the well here, Jacob's well, at, when the sun is at its hottest at noon time? And the answer is that she's an outcast. Every scholar will tell you the same thing. Because what we're going to do is we're going to find out that this, this woman has had multiple husbands, five to be exact, and the guy she's sleeping with now is not her husband. Um, by Samaritan and Jewish moral codes, this is absolutely inexcusable. The only justification for remarriage was adultery or if your spouse died. Okay? Adultery or if your spouse died. So unless this woman had been widowed five times, okay? Unless this would have, she, chances are, again, this is speculation, chances are she's probably getting divorced because of infidelity. And now she's sleeping with a guy who she's not married with, and the guy won't put a ring on it. He only is using her for her body, okay? Um, 
as I was studying this, there, there, are other, there are other wells in Sychar actually in the town. So why would this woman come out at the hottest time of day alone on the outskirts of town? Why would she walk a half a mile to a mile outside of town to go and get water? And again, the answer is she is an outcast. She has been ostracized by her people and she's living in shame. And that's who Jesus talks to. A Samaritan, a woman, an immoral outcast. He breaks every barrier of that day. The racial barrier, the gender barrier, the moral, the moral barrier. He reaches across every single divide to connect with her. Do not for a second think that you are beyond the reach of God. Regardless of what you tell yourself, regardless of what the culture would tell yourself, regardless of what your family tells you, you are not beyond the reach of, of, of Christ. He will reach across every barrier that he needs to to grab a hold of you. Notice something here that this week that kind of blew my mind. Did this woman come out looking for Jesus? No. This woman wasn't coming out to look for Jesus. Religion will tell you that those who connect with God are those who search hard enough, who study hard enough, who pray enough, who feed the poor enough, who purify themselves enough. But look at this woman. Look at the woman. She's not living a religious life at all. She's not spiritually searching. She's not praying. She wasn't trying to purify herself. She wasn't getting water to, to, to you know, help some homeless kid. What was she doing? She was getting water, right? She just went to the well to get some water. Um, she wasn't trying to clean herself up. But you see, that's Christianity. It's grace. You don't search hard enough until you find God. God finds you. God's not the one who's lost. Right? We don't, God doesn't need us to find him. He's not lost. We were the ones that were lost. You don't need to work your way towards him. He's already worked his way towards you. You don't get saved because you've managed to reach high enough. He's reached down here to you, and he's pulled you up out of the muck and the mire. We get it twisted sometimes. I heard somebody say recently that because Christianity is filled with grace, that by its very definition, it's filled with surprises. This woman is about to experience a surprise encounter with God himself that is going to change her life forever. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus says to this woman, Can I have a drink? And she's shocked at the fact that, she would, that he would talk to her, a Samaritan woman outcast, right? And, and Jesus tells her, No, 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 what's really shocking is that you're not asking me for the living water. That's the shocking part. Not that I talk to you, but that you're not talking to me. He says, if you knew the gift of God, literally that means if you understood the gift of God, if you understood who I am and you truly understood the depth and the beauty of this gift, you would be asking me, you would be begging me for this living water. But like Nicodemus, this woman is a bit confused because she takes Jesus literally, right? And so she says in verse 11, The woman said to him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did the son and his livestock. His son and, and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus isn't introducing new metaphors here. 
What he, but what he is doing is he is saying, I am the answer, I am the fruit, I am the fruition of long-spoken prophecies. The Old Testament is going to tell us a whole bunch uh, about, our, about the soul's thirst for God. We are separated from God because of our sin, and now our souls long, we yearn, we thirst to be reunited back to him. Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Jeremiah 2 says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's profound imagery there. God is this fountain of life-giving water, but we've rejected him. We dig out our own cisterns, our own wells is what that is, our own wells. But these wells, they're broken and they're cracked and they can't hold water. These broken cisterns, we cling to them for life, but they cannot sustain you. God promises over and over in the Old Testament that one day he was going to change all of this. He'd come and he would change all of it. Isaiah 44 says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Isaiah 49, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them by spring, and by springs of water will guide them. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, if we're not careful, some of this imagery that's being used can be a little lost on us. And here's why. Because almost everywhere today in the U.S., we have ready access to drinking water, right? Um, Most of us have never actually experienced real, true, profound, life-threatening thirst, okay? Um, Most of us have never actually known somebody who's died of dehydration, but she probably had. This woman probably had. They lived in an arid desert climate where drought didn't just mean that food prices were going to get hiked up a bit. Okay, it meant that people were going to suffer and probably die. Um, Our bodies, as you know, you're all a lot smarter than me. You guys know this. Our bodies are primarily made up of water, right? So when you experience extreme deprivation of water, it's an incredibly painful process. Your whole body begins to shut down. What happens is you begin to get really tired, and oftentimes you end, up, you end up passing out. Your mental capacity is impaired. Your muscles begin to spasm. Your tongue begins to swell up so you can't swallow anymore. Um, it's almost, I've heard it described, it's almost as if the sun that is beating down on you from the outside comes on the inside, and there's this burning, searing pain inside of you. Um, your body just begins to fall apart in this amazingly agonizing, painful way. So think about that. I'm not trying to kind of morbid, right, that we're talking about this, but, but think about this for a second. To taste water, pure water, after having been truly, profoundly, life-threateningly thirsty has got to be the most satisfying experience possible, right? Think about what it does. It gives you life again. It soothes you. It heals you. It restores you. It allows you to think clearly again. It allows you to function again. So so hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have something that your soul needs in the very same way that your physical body needs water. To the same degree that your physical body needs water to live and to function, I have something your soul needs. And this water that I offer won't just make you feel better or satisfy you for a few minutes or a few hours. It's going to well up in you. It's a spring welling up to eternal life. 
prior to this encounter, when this woman tried to quench that spiritual thirst, she looked to things, she looked to circumstances, she looked to relationships. Her relationships with the men that she was married to and this man that she's, she's with now, they're not just a part of her life. That was her life. That's where she, her identity was found. That's where she found her purpose, where she found her self-worth, where she found her value. And for every single one of us here, we face that same temptation, don't we? For many of us here, we don't just have a job. We don't just have a job. That job is the well that we're drinking of, that we're drinking from to find, to, to, be, to be quenched, to, to quench that thirst. It's where we find our identity. It's where we find our self-worth. It's where we find our purpose. But the, but the problem is, these are broken cisterns, the Bible tells us. Broken cisterns, unable to hold water. When your entire, please hear me, when your entire sense of self-worth and purpose is wrapped up in your job, in your business, and the economy turns sour, and you go bankrupt, and your, your business goes bankrupt, what happens to you? You are bankrupt. If your identity, if you are united to your job, and your job goes, your business goes bankrupt, you are now bankrupt. Um, if, you're, if the only way you're able to fall asleep at night is by reminding yourself of how good of a parent you are, what happens when your kid grows up and runs off? Your sense of self-worth and success has just run off, right? If your purpose and your worth is wrapped up in things or circumstances or relationships that are fickle and frail, the, the very founda- your very foundation as a person is just that, fickle and frail. But if you are united to Jesus... We say this a lot here. If you are united to Jesus, you are as secure as Jesus. That's great news. If you are united to Jesus, you are as secure as Jesus. Jesus is telling this woman, if you put down the bucket of your soul into any pursuit or relationship and drink out of those things instead of me, all you'll do is find yourself getting thirsty, thirstier and thirstier. And there's something else we need to see here. Um, Jesus is deliberately comparing a spring and a well. A spring and a well. A well in the Near East simply collected rainwater as it fell down from the sky, right? It just collected it or it came in from the, 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 the ground. Um, you know, it uh, collected on the soil and then came in and collected in this little well. But what happens when, that, when your area experiences a drought? What happens? The well goes dry, Right? Not only that, but if, if somebody wanted to, if somebody had the inclination, they could go over to that well when it's dry and they could take and they could you know, fill that up with dirt and they could actually build up on top of that well and, and, and nobody would ever even remember, remember that there was a well there. It would be dried up, lost, and forgotten. That's a well. But what about a spring? Remember, Jesus is comparing a well to a spring. What about a spring? You can throw junk on top of a spring. You can throw dirt on top of it. You can even build a house up on top of it. But what's going to happen? That spring is, that that is going to come bubbling up underneath that dirt. It's going to undo your foundation and it's going, your house is going to fall down. Right? You can't stop a spring. Jesus is saying, what I am offering you is, a live, is living water, a spring that will well up to eternal life. It's persistent. It's powerful. You cannot stop it. Even when you fall, even when junk is piled on top, the spring is going to well up and break through that despair, break through that sin. You cannot stop it. That's the, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That, that is the best. I was writing this on Friday afternoon at Wendy's, and I wanted to like, break out and cheer as I was writing this out. When you stop and think about it, 
That is the best news in all the world. If Jesus has put this spring in you and it's welling up to eternal life and there is nothing that will stop it. It doesn't matter what you put on top of it. My, my uh, bedtime reading lately has been, uh, surprise, surprise, Lord of the Rings. And uh, I haven't read it since I was a kid, and so I'm rereading it. And there's this, there's this one part um, when Gandalf, Gandalf the wizard is feeling the weight of the task at hand, right? Because he's got to save Middle Earth, right? He's helping lead this little fellowship to go save Middle Earth. And he's bearing this great burden on him, right? And one, at one point, one of his friends look at him, and, and Tolkien, the author, he writes this. He says, as the friend looks at him, he says, Yet in the wizard's face... He saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under it all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing. Let me read that again. Yet in the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under it all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing. Can that be said of you today? Can that be said of you? I don't know the burden that each of you are carrying. I'm not going to pretend to. But may I remind you that if you belong to Jesus Christ, then regardless of what is happening up here on the surface, that Jesus has planted his presence deep inside of you, and he is a fountain that cannot be stopped. In your despair, hope will, not hope could, hope will break through. It's hard to see right now, but, but hear me. It's bubbling up. It's bubbling up. Let me, let me give you a little exhortation here. Stop throwing junk on top of it, though. You're just delaying the process. Stop, throwing, stop covering it with dirt. Stop trying to build structures on top of it. Stop fighting it. Let the presence and the power and the peace of God well up within you and break through. But for some of you here, you may not belong uh, to Jesus Christ. You, you have yet to say yes to him, yes to his, to his offer. Perhaps you have no idea even really why you're here, frankly. Um, Maybe somebody dragged you here. Maybe you've just been playing the game for a whole lot of years, fooling everybody. Frankly, all the stuff that we're talking about, you don't take it all that seriously. If so, let me tell you, you have something in common with this woman. Uh, because on some level, I think that she thought that Jesus was kind of a nut job at this point. I think he, she thought at this point he's a little crazy, a little wacko, right? Because she says, really? You're going to give me water so that I'll never be thirsty again. Again, she's still thinking literally here. Uh, verse 15, she says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, maybe she was being serious, but I don't think so because at this point, Jesus had done nothing to really uh, uh, clarify his true identity and authority. And so I think what she's saying is, Oh, really? Okay, why don't you give me some of your magic water then? Right? A little bit of sarcasm in there. Give me some of the magic water so I don't have to keep coming back out here. And so Jesus, I love it, he comes right back with the sarcasm. He says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Do you, you kind of catch a little sarcastic dialogue that's going back and forth? It, Jesus may have been a little sarc- sarcastic there, but, I, but he didn't. I think in a, there's, there's love underneath that. There's some love underneath that. Because look, th- things got serious fast. Because at this point, um, she's just been making fun of this, you know, odd Jew who doesn't understand, like, social barriers. Like, you shouldn't be talking to me. I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk to each other. And you're talking all this magic spring water. Uh, And then all of a sudden, he just hits her with this. This insight into her private life. 
You can just imagine that whatever she's doing at this moment, she just stops dead in her tracks and looks at him. Jesus had to get her attention, so he touched the most sensitive, vulnerable, painful spot in her life. Because listen, as the old saying goes, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. The quickest way to the heart is through a wound. William Barclay is one of my favorite commentators he's, he, from, from last century. He said this. This is how he pictured the scene. He's reading into it a little bit, but this is how he pictured it. He said, The woman stiffened as if a sudden pain had caught her. She recoiled as if hit by a sudden shock. She grew white as one who had seen a sudden apparition. And so indeed she had, for she had suddenly caught sight of herself. She was suddenly compelled to face herself and the looseness and the immorality and the total inadequacy of her life. There are two revelations in Christianity, the revelation of God and the revelation of ourselves. No man ever really sees himself until he sees himself in the presence of Christ. There is no other way of putting it. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. We awake to ourselves and we awake to our need for God. A prophet points out to a man or a nation what is wrong, but he does so not to push them to despair, but to point the way to cure and to amendment and to rightness of life. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And I've heard a lot of, a lot of preachers suggest that what she's doing here, she's trying to avoid the conviction that she's feeling. Um, Jesus has just pointed out the darkest and most painful and most powerful idol in this woman's life, and she doesn't want to deal with it. And so she does what a lot of people do. Rather than truly, honestly investigating or accepting her need for a savior, what she does is she takes up some frivolous intellectual arguments, some intellectual controversy. Okay, I, I, you can't do that. I did that for a while. Okay, I've done that. I wrestled through all of these little peripheral arguments because I was afraid to consider the radical claims of the gospel. I wanted to keep those radical claims of the gospel at arm's length. And so I just kind of hung out here and dealt with all this intellectual controversy. That may be what she was doing. I have another theory, though. I, I, think, I, think maybe, I think she was sincerely asking Jesus, where do I go? What do I do? You're right. Where do I go to worship? Where do I go atone for my sin? I have sinned. Where do I, where do I go to atone? I think at this point she had some, some respect for who Jesus was. She said, you're a prophet. Where do I go? What do I do? Jesus has just held up a mirror to her sin and her immorality, and she knows she's got to be made right. So she's saying, what do I do? Where do I go? How, how do people atone for their sin? Sacrifice, right? It was, it was sacrifice. Where did the sacrifice take place? Anyone? The temple. All right. Um, the sacrifice was the central component of their worship in the temple. I think what she's saying is, you're right. I've got to go make this right. Where do I go? What do I do? And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So hear what he says, and then also hear what he doesn't say. He, he, he doesn't say, uh, it's fine, go to your temple in Mount Gerizim, that'll work. Okay? He doesn't say, uh, go to the temple in Jerusalem, that, that, that's, that's the place. That's what the Jews would have said, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, that's the place to go. He didn't say that. What he also did not say is, you don't need a temple. 
I think that's how we typically get it. It's like, oh, well, he's, you know, he's saying that you, know, uh, you, you don't need I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is you need a temple, and I'm that temple. Listen, this is, this is, why, this is how we, got, we get there. Um, he's not saying that uh, because at one point uh, God, God is going to turn into a spirit and you can worship him anywhere. He says, an hour is coming when everything is going to change. An hour is coming when it's all going to change. What is the hour that he's talking about? Do you remember that in the Gospel of John, every time Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about his hour of death. He's talking about his hour of death. He's saying the hour of my death is coming and everything is going to be different. You don't need a temple. I'm the temple. You don't need this temple. You don't need that temple. I'm the temple. The earthly temple was just a shadow of the real temple, the true temple, Jesus. The earthly temple was a place for sacrifice, but what or who was our true sacrifice? Jesus, right? The earthly temple had a light stand, a candelabra that perpetually burned bright, okay? We don't have a light stand anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. The earthly temple had a place where they would keep bread on. It was signified life with God. We don't have that anymore. We don't have a table up here with bread on it, although that would be kind of nice. We don't have a table with bread on it. Why? Because Jesus is the bread of life. The earthly temple was simply a shadow to the true temple, The very moment that Jesus breathed his last on that cross and he cried out, it is finished. The veil in the temple was torn in half, torn from top to bottom. That that was the the veil that separated you and I from God. This was God's way of saying, now you you don't need a temple, you need Jesus. Jesus is the temple. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. So how do we receive him? How do we taste that living water? Jesus told us earlier, he said, if anyone has the water that I give, it's a gift. He gives it. Wisdom and works cannot attain it. Power cannot accomplish it. Money cannot buy it. It's a gift purchased by his blood, and he offers it to us freely. Revelation 21, Jesus says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. Without payment. And for those who do receive him, he gives us a picture in this. This is a really well-rounded passage because he gives us a picture of what we now become. He says, The true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Spirit and truth. That's the heart and the head. It's all of you. It's all that you are. Jesus is leading this woman who came out to get well into worship. He is the ultimate worship leader. The Greek word that we translate as worship literally means, it means to recognize someone or something of superior value. He's leading this woman to recognize someone or something of superior value. The word that we translate as the word worship. The word worship is the shortened version of the old English word worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H, ship. Worth-ship. Um, I read a great sermon on worth-ship. This week, and this is the illustration the preacher used. I love this. He said, he said, imagine your grandma gives you a piece of jewelry. And it's nice and everything. You like it, whatever, but you just kind of toss it on, on the top of your dresser. And it sits there unattended for a while. Um, you know, let's say that one day a friend of yours who happens to be a jeweler uh, visits your home, walks through your hallway, happens to look inside your, your bedroom door, sees it on top of your dresser, sitting there. And just, he goes crazy. And he's like, oh, man, do you have any idea what you have? Do you have any idea of of the value of what you have here? This is unbelievably valuable. 
you find out that not only does this, this piece of jewelry contain precious stones, but it's obviously the unique work of a craftsman whose, whose work is you know, you know, highly admired and, and incredibly rare. Um, your friend tells you, man, this, this piece of jewelry that you have sitting on your desk is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even more. Um, what happens to you at that point? What goes through your mind and heart at that point? What's your response? Your entire attitude towards that jewelry begins to change, doesn't it? You begin to see all these beauties and these intricacies within that piece of jewelry for the first time. It's like you're seeing it with brand new eyes. And then your mind starts reeling with how different your life is going to be now. You begin to consider how the value of this thing is going to impact your life. You begin to to consider the implications of this piece of jewelry's value. That night, uh, that night, would you just toss it on your dresser again? No. The answer is absolutely not. You're careful with it. Not only are you careful with it, you set it down nicely and gently, probably put a little cloth underneath it, right? You also begin to invest in it, right? You begin to invest in it. You probably go out and you buy a safe so you can keep it in, in, uh, in the safe. And what if your jeweler friend says, you know, if you, take, if you repair this, if, if, you will, if you will get this cleaned, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you thousands of dollars to do this because the only guy that can actually, who is actually capable of doing this, lives out in Europe, and he's going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars. But if you will take the time and you actually invest in this, and you'll go get it repaired, you'll get it cleaned, you will buy your plane ticket out there, um, man, it'll be well worth it. This thing will probably double in value. Um, you may have to sell some stuff to afford the the costs. Uh, you you may have to let go of some things, say goodbye to some things in your life. But let me ask you: Does that investment bother you? Does your investment in that bother you? Absolutely not. Because a few thousand dollars in a plane ticket seem like nothing now in comparison to the immense value of this jewelry. Your whole attitude has changed. This jeweler, your jeweler friend, has led you in worth-ship. He's opened your eyes to see the value of this object in your life. You've let the truth of its value begin to change the way you look at it and the way you begin to handle it and the way that you invest in it. It has utterly changed your life. You follow me? Now listen, if, if, it's, if it's true that there can be diamonds and jewelry that have so much value that it changes your life to that extent, then surely you must see that if God is a reality, then his presence in your life demands that same type of attitude. If he is who the Bible says he is, and he is incomparably, immeasurably valuable, you must approach him with the same kind of consideration. Isn't that the only reasonable thing to do? I'll just say one more thing on this. Um, we, I know there's probably got people in here like, man, I, I wish, I wish I, could, I could conjure up that kind of sacrifice, that kind of devotion, that kind of worship. I wish I could conjure that. I wish I could create that. But you don't, you don't have to create worship. You transfer worship. You don't create worship, do you? You transfer worship because we're all worshiping something. We all have something that we view as having ultimate worth, ultimate significance. It gives us purpose and joy in life. When Jesus asked this woman to bring her husband over, he was not changing the subject in the conversation. What he was doing, he was opening her eyes to what she had been worshiping up until that point. He's telling her, he said, woman, you are spiritually thirsty You thirst deeply for acceptance and significance and purpose. You've been drinking from the fountain of male relationships and sex, and that will never satisfy. Only I can satisfy your thirst. Friends, from what fountain are you drinking? 
from what well are you drinking? What, are you, uh, what, what most defines you? What gives you purpose? What shapes your decisions in life? How do you make decisions? What helps shape your, your, your decisions on your budget? What helps shape decisions on, on, on what house to buy and where to live and what to do with your family? And on any level, does it have to do with your relationship with Jesus? What helps shape your decision-making? What are you most fully investing in and giving yourself to? Are you drinking and swimming in the spring that swells up to eternal life, or are you still drinking from that stagnant water of the world? We need to finish up. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It does not get more clear than that, does it? He's gotten rid of all of the mysterious questions. He's not bringing up any more mysterious metaphors. Jesus said it plain and clear. I am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one that's going to change everything. It's me. And that changed everything. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Do you see the transformation in the woman? Did you pick that up? Here is a lady who who did everything she possibly could to avoid coming into contact with people for fear that she would be judged and ridiculed. And now she drops what's in her hands and she runs into town to anybody who will listen to tell them about Jesus. And she's using her personal story to, to communicate who Jesus is. She's using her story to point people to Jesus. What a tremendous picture of what you and I are called to do. Jesus has penetrated this woman's heart. This woman was poor, she was jaded, and she was as lost as can be. But what happens? Jesus readies her, and then he makes himself known. He reveals himself to this woman. He says, I am he, and then her eyes are open, and this new joy, and this new freedom, and this new security emerges. See how she runs to the people. She doesn't walk to the people. She doesn't like walk back like, should I do this or not? She, she drops her bucket at the well. She doesn't even bring it back with her. She drops her bucket and runs a half a mile back into town to the very people that she was avoiding. She doesn't care what they think anymore. She doesn't care what they think because she has a new self-image. She has a new sense of security and she has a new heart. Remember what we just said about worship? She sees laying down her ego, her pride, her reputation, her very life. She sees it as nothing in comparison to the value of Jesus. Jesus, he's that pearl of great price. She has seen him for who he is. She has seen his worth. She has experienced his, his gift, and it's changed everything. Has it happened to you? Is that happening to you? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process. Is it happening to you? Have you seen Jesus for who he is? Have you tasted that living water? Is it welling up within you and spilling out of your life today? And is it touching others? That's, that's the imagery. That it's, just, it's welling up and it flows out of you. Inevitably, it's going to affect those around you. Have you experienced that? I hope you have. And if not, remember today, it is a gift you don't strive for it, it's a gift, and it's been offered freely. I told you in the beginning that Jesus said, if you understood, if you, just, if you just understood who I was and what I am offering to you, you would ask me for living water. 
So in one final effort to show you the beauty of both the gift and the giver, I'm going to read one last passage uh, to you, one last text. This comes out of the book Encounters with Jesus, where the author analyzes this very conversation we've been talking about, the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan. This is what he said. He said, why did she find salvation? I'll tell you. It was because Jesus was thirsty. If he had not been thirsty, he would not have gone to the well, and she would not have found the living water. But why was Jesus thirsty? It was because the divine Son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, had emptied himself of his glory and descended into the world as a vulnerable mortal, subject to becoming weary and thirsty. In other words, she found the living water because Jesus Christ said, I thirst. That is not the last time Jesus Christ said, I thirst, in the book of John. On the cross, just before he died, he said, I thirst. And he meant more than just physical thirst. There, Jesus was experiencing the loss of the relationship with his Father because he was taking the punishment we deserved for our sins. There, he was cut off from the Father, the source of living water. He was experiencing the ultimate, torturous, killing, eternal thirst of which the worst death by dehydration is just a hint. That is both paradoxical and astonishing. It is because Jesus Christ experienced cosmic thirst on the cross that you and I can have our spiritual thirst satisfied. It is because he died that we can be born again, and he did it gladly. Seeing what he did and why he did it will turn our hearts away from the things that enslave us and toward him in worship. That is the gospel, and it is the same for skeptics, believers, insiders, outcasts, and everyone in between. Amen? Let's pray.